All right, if you have your Bibles, turn to Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6. If you're new with us, we've been walking through the book of Acts for the past several months, okay? Um, But today, we're actually, because Acts is a big book, we've divided it into three parts. So today, we're going to be concluding part one. And we're going to be doing that with the first seven verses of Acts chapter 6. So if you haven't been here, you're new here, I want to catch you up on what's been going on. Um, Back in the Gospel of Luke, Luke is the writer of Acts. Luke is part one. Acts is part two. It's the sequel of the Gospel of Luke. Luke wrote this Gospel in the Gospel of Luke. And what Luke told us there was about the life of Jesus. We see that Jesus came into the world. He lived a sinless life. He went and died the death that was ours to die um, because he lived that perfect life. And then he resurrected from the grave. And then after he resurrected, he went on to do ministry for several years. And in that ministry, there were things that he was doing that was really just leading people everywhere to himself. He was allowing people who had never seen to have sight. He was allowing people who didn't have the ability to hear, to to hear for the first time. There were people who were dead that he resurrected and gave life to. There were so many different miracles that were happening. And then Jesus in Acts, or Luke chapter 24, he called his disciples together in the upper room. And Jesus told his disciples, I'm about to ascend back to the right hand of the Father, to God. But you you, you can trust and you can know that I'm going to send another helper that's suitable for you. In fact, you'll be able to do even greater things than I was able to do when the Spirit of God comes. And then we get to Acts chapter 1 and Luke picks up where Luke chapter 24 ended off and it tells us that you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses. And he tells us the four corners of the earth there. And and, and the whole point of that is the Spirit of God's about to come. And these people, these 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 disciples, 120 of them, they're waiting in the upper room for this event to happen. In Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit comes. Now, we know that the Holy Spirit has always been in existence. We saw that even last week back in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 and verse 2, right? So the Spirit of God, who is the essence of God, a a part of God, um, he's always been in existence, but he makes his presence known in a special way here in Acts chapter 2. And as the story is told, the Bible tells us in Acts chapter 2, 42 through 47, that the Lord added a great number to to the house, to to the family of faith, uh, day by day, those who were being saved. So we saw that the Lord was beginning to do this work. The birth of the church happened. And we've been saying from the beginning of this that the church is a movement of God. And what do movements do? I just told you, they move. That's what movements do. And the movement has begun here in Acts chapter 2. The movement is beginning. People are getting saved. People are coming to know Jesus. And then the movement continues. We have a a few that were added to uh, the fold. Day by day, those are being saved. And then we see this multiplying effect. No, Peter preaches the gospel. He's full of the Spirit, the day at Pentecost. And the Bible tells us that many, thousands, 3,000 people came to know Jesus. Then you flip over a chapter, and you see 5,000 people came to know Jesus. So we've been saying it like this. When the people of God are full of the Spirit of God, that's when we'll experience a movement of God. Things begin to happen. And I believe that is even true still today, that when the people of God are full of the Spirit of God, that we will see a movement of God begin to happen. But here's the deal. Anytime God begins to work in a mighty way, what can you expect? Yes, you can expect that Satan is going to begin to attack. 
Satan's going to attack. He doesn't like the work that God does. He's, he stands in complete contrast to the work that God does. And he's going to work hard to try to see that work hindered or stopped completely. We've already seen some of this. In fact, there's three ways in the book of Acts up to this point that we've seen Satan work to stop the advancement of the gospel. The first is he used external persecution. Satan attacked through external persecution. You remember in Acts chapter 4, Peter and John, they come upon this lame man who was lame from birth, and they healed this lame man in the name of Jesus, and they're starting to tell men and women everywhere about Jesus Christ. And what happens there? They're arrested. They're thrown in jail for the night. And then they're brought before um, the same high priest that Jesus was brought for, and they're put on trial. And what does the high priest tell them? I mean, it literally says it in Scripture that the whole point of what they were about to do was to stop the advancement of the gospel. And then the high priest says, listen, we have no evidence to charge you of anything, but this is a new law that we're implementing in the land. You can no longer go and preach the name of Jesus to anyone. And Peter and John, they respond quite eloquently. And they say, what? Whether it be right for us to obey you or God, like you have to be the judge in the sight of God for us to obey you or God, you have to be the judge. But we can't help but speak about the things we have seen and heard. And Peter and John are saying, we just can't stay silent about who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. So you see this external persecution brought on Peter and John. And we experience some of that, maybe here in our country, very a mild form of that. But we do experience some of that. And there's this external persecution, but I love how the gospel works. It backfires on them, doesn't it? Because, again... The church continued to grow, and in fact, it catapulted it into a whole new level of growth after that event. So persecution didn't stop the movement of God. And then there was a second thing that Satan used to attack the church. Not only was it external persecution, but he actually used something internal to stop the advancement of the gospel. You remember what that was in Acts chapter 5 with Ananias and Sapphira? It was hypocrisy. You remember their story? Ananias and Sapphira get wind of, oh man, Barnabas, he went and sold his land. And he used that money and he gave it to the church and people's needs were being met. Ministry was being done. And Ananias and Sapphira, who loved the praise of people, thought, man, we can go sell our land. We got some land up in East Cobb that we can go and sell. And then they go and sell it and they say, hey, we're going to bring this money and lay it, you know, bring it to the church. And what they actually do is they deceive the people to believing they were laying it all down when in fact they kept some of it for themselves. And God didn't care if they kept it or if they gave it away. What he cared about was the deception before brothers and sisters in Christ. That they were being hypocrites. That they were telling people or at least giving the illusion that they were giving it all. Just like Barnabas and others were doing. When in fact they really kept some from themselves. And they were put on trial in some degree. They were asked, did you really keep any? And they said no. And then one of them fell over dead. And then the other was brought in, the wife. And she also lied. And then she fell over dead. And what did Jesus do through internal hypocrisy? What did he do? He, he subtracted from his church. And what did the church do as a result of that subtraction? It continued to grow. Even that didn't stop the advancement of the gospel. So today we come to a third way that Satan attacks. And it's another internal way. Okay, This is through internal division. He uses internal division to attack the church as well. By the way, there are three separate things that Satan has used so far in the early church to stop the advancement of the gospel. Two-thirds of those are internal. Only one comes from the outside. 
I think we would do ourselves well to pay attention to that ratio simply because God's going to use more internal conflict to stop his, or Satan's going to attack us more from the inside than he's going to attack from the out. We need to understand that as a church family. So today Satan's going to attack the church again. He's going to do this through internal division. But here's what you're going to love today. You're going to love how you're going to see the resiliency of the body of Christ. How they're not going to allow this to happen. In addition to that, you're going to see the resiliency of church leadership and how they intervene so that this doesn't happen. Today we're going to be looking at what growing pains of a church look like. What does growing pains of the church look like? We're going to be in Acts chapter 6. And by the way, this is a critical moment in the life of the church because they realize that if they do not make some significant changes, they'll no longer make the impact that they're currently making in the world around them. <clears throat> now, why is that important? Why is that important? Because these men and women in the early church, they were committed to doing whatever it takes to see the gospel advance. They, they were willing to do whatever it would take to see the gospel advance. The last thing that they wanted to see happen was that gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ was not advancing from one person to the next. And the question I'm going to ask you today in conclusion of our time together is, very, is that very question. Are you willing to do whatever it takes so the gospel can continue to advance? Let's read in Acts chapter 6. It says this. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. So here's the situation, church family. The church here, it is booming in growth. And as they are growing, there are some challenges. There's some problems that are coming to the surface. Two of those challenges, two of those problems are presented here in verse 1. The first one is the church is experiencing growing pains. They're experiencing growing pains. In Acts 2, if you remember, I told you just a moment ago, there were only 120 disciples of Christ. There were only 120 followers of Jesus. Life at that point in time was very simple for these people. They were devoted to each other. We learned that in Acts 2, verses 42 through 47. They spent time together. They prayed together. They attended the synagogue together. They did life together. They were in and out of each other's homes. It was simple. They knew each other by name. They knew what was going on in one another's lives. They were a tight-knit community of believers who were devoted to each other. That's the word that's used in Acts 2.42. That word devoted means affectionately committed. They were affectionately committed to each other's lives. But as the church started to grow, guess what? So did their problems. So did their problems. And by the way, this is how it works in our day and age too, isn't it? You get more people, you get more problems. You get more people, and you have more complaints. This is true of any organization that you'll ever encounter. As they begin to grow, they experience growing pains. It's true of an organization. It's true of groups of people. If you have a life group that's continuing to grow, the same thing's going to happen in that life group. It's true in churches. It's even true in our own individual families. I remember in 2009 when Kayla and I got married. Life was simple. It was just me and it was her. We could go on a date anytime we wanted. We could go not only any day, but any time, literally any time we wanted. 
we would eat at 9 o'clock at night because we had nothing to do, like, right? So we could do anything we wanted. We had no distractions. It was just us. I knew what was going on in her life. She knew what was going on in mine. We were the only two people in our entire household that we had to talk to, so we talked a lot, right? And sometimes that pre- presents problems unnecessarily. <laughs> but it was just us. And then we added a kid. I think in 2010, we added a kid on October the 13th, 2010. She comes into the world, right? And guess what? With her came complaints and problems. Now, Kayla and I, it was just the two of us. We had occasional complaints and problems. I was usually the one complaining. She was usually the problem. It's good. It's a joke. (laughs) Bad joke. She's not here to defend herself. But we had occasional complaints and problems, right? And then when we bring a kid into the fold, we have a little bit more complaints and a little bit more problems. And then we had a second and a third and a fourth child. And now we can't go 15 minutes without a complaint or a problem, right? That's just how life works. As people are added, complaints and problems are added with them. So as the church continues to grow, the more people that came into the doors, the challenges began to grow as well. One of these was growing pains. They were experiencing growing pains. Now listen, one of these growing pains was this. It was that growth was bringing a perceived lack of care. You hear that? Perceived lack of care. It didn't mean that they they weren't really cared for. It just meant by perception. They didn't feel like they were cared for. So growth brings a perceived lack of care. That's what's happening here in Acts chapter 6. If you were to go back and look at Acts chapter (coughs) 4, verse 34 would tell you this. There was not a needy person among them. Not one. Not one needy person among them. But then, just as the chapter, uh, just, just the chapter before, it tells us that every need of every member was being met. But now as the church was growing, there were some people who started to feel neglected. There were some people who didn't feel cared for. When things were small, they were more intimate. When things were small, life was more simple. But when things started to grow, it started to feel like to some people that things were getting a bit impersonable. So you can almost hear them, if, if you try to step into the story, you can almost hear them grumble and say, man, things aren't like they used to be. Back when there was only 120 of us, you know what, I could call Apostle Peter and have a meeting with him anytime I wanted. But now that we've grown, it's really hard to get a meeting with Apostle Peter. Back when it was just 120 of us, man, I could call really any apostle I wanted and that apostle is going to be available to me. But now, all of a sudden, we've grown. My apostle of preference isn't available. And don't act like we don't know what this is like. Get sick and go to the hospital, and you want your apostle of preference to be there. I promise. And when we send in a, a pastor, we get mad because it wasn't our pastor of preference. You follow what's happening here? This is what's happening in the early church. And I'm not saying, I have never heard that here, by the way. I'm, that's just me laying my cards on the table. Not one person has ever given me that complaint. But it, it, it is to be expected. That's what happens. And as the, as the church began to grow, so did these different problems. You can probably guess how they responded. Right? How, how they respond to this growth. They responded by complaining. Whenever complaints begin to fill the hearts of believers, church family, it's never a good thing. It's never a good thing. Why? We talked about this last week. Remember, your heart was created to be filled by the Spirit of God. And when you start filling your heart with complaints, 
all of a sudden you're doing a disjustice to the Spirit of God. You're, you're allowing the Spirit to take its way out the back door while inviting your complaints in the front door. And that's what they're doing. It says that their hearts were filled with complaint. Why? Because, because when our hearts are filled with complaint, listen, it waters down the message that we're trying to preach and it causes our witness to become ineffective in a watching world. We're so focused on our complaint and what's not going the way that we want it to go that our witness begins to get affected and hindered to a watching world. So here's something that we have to understand as a church this morning. Complaints are the gateway to division. Complaints are the gateway to division. Here's what's happening. There's a group of people in the church, they feel like they're being overlooked. These feelings that they're feeling are subjective feelings. It does not say in this text that that's the reality. It just says that this is the way that they feel. They feel like the Hellenists, the, they feel like the Hebrews are getting, getting their way. They feel like the, they're getting their fair of distribution of food. And this feeling makes them respond with a, a, somewhat a complaint. But now let's just give them the benefit of the doubt. Let's assume that they don't just feel this way. Let's assume that this really is happening. Let's assume that the Hellenists really are being neglected. Let's assume that the Hellenists aren't getting their daily distribution, and that's a reality. Okay, let's assume that that's what's happening. Do you realize that the problem only escalates by them offering a complaint? It only escalates. It doesn't solve anything. In fact, it makes things worse. Do you remember what Paul told the church in Philippi? Philippians 2, verse 14. Do everything without what? Without complaining. Without disputing. Without grumbling. He says in that text. See, Paul understood that complaining and grumbling would lead to division in the church. And he spent a lot of time, if you read the Pauline epistles, he spent a ton of time fighting for unity within the church. So he did everything he could to keep division out of it. Here's something else we need to understand. God hates when you and I sow seeds of discord among the brothers. And if you don't believe me, go read Proverbs chapter 6. You remember what Proverbs chapter 6 says, what, around verse 16 to 19? It says these are six things that God hates, and seven is an abomination. And then what's, what's the last thing that's listed on that list? He hates when we sow seeds of discord among the brethren. God absolutely, he doesn't say I dislike it, church, when you sow seeds of discord. No, God says I hate it when you sow seeds of discord within the church context. So there's a perceived lack of care. By perception, they felt like they weren't being cared for. But growth also leads to, secondly, an unrealistic expectation of leadership. Growth brings with it an unrealistic expectation of leadership. See, the church was growing beyond the capacity of their current leaders. That's what's happening here in Acts. The leadership was overlooking something because the church had grown so vastly. Now, there was no one apostle who could meet any of the needs of, of everyone. They just couldn't do it. And neither can we as pastors. In fact, the, the apostles, they worked together, I would say, the best that they could to make sure every need within the church was supplied. But at the end of the day, they were not able to meet everyone's needs. See, when you see the word pastor or elder in your Bible, they're synonymous terms, okay? In fact, the word elders used more than the word pastor in Scripture. But when you see these two words used synonymously, they're always mentioned in the singular or plural. 
they're always mentioned in the plural. When, when God founded his church, he did so for it to be governed by a plurality of church leadership, a plurality of elders. And why is that important? Because he understood that not one man can do everything that needs to get done. One, one man can't do it. It's a shared responsibility. We have a team of pastors here at Eagles Landing that try to work together to make sure every single need is accounted for. So the, the growth here led to unrealistic expectation of leadership. So the first thing that we see is the church is experiencing growing pains. But there's another thing that we see, probably one that's more important, and that is this. The church is experiencing a cultural conflict. The church here in verse 1 is experiencing a cultural conflict. What does that look like? you got Hellenists, and you have Hebrews. These are the two types of Jews that are in Jerusalem. Okay? The Hebrews made up the majority of the population. These people, these Hebrew people, they were born in Jerusalem. They lived in Jerusalem. They were local to Jerusalem. They spoke Hebrew. They read the Hebrew scriptures. They met in the synagogues uh, daily. And that's what they did. These were the, the Hebrews, okay? They were the local people, the majority. And then you had the Hellenists. The Hellenists made up the minority population in this Jerusalem Hebrew culture. The Hellenists are Greeks who have converted to Judaism and they're now followers of Christ. You've heard them in history, maybe church history, maybe just regular history, referred to as Greek-speaking Jews, right? Why? Because these are Jews that don't speak Hebrew. These are Jews that speak Greek. They're Jewish by blood, but they're Greek by culture. They spoke Greek. They had no real connection to the temple in Jerusalem. And many of these people, they actually dispersed all throughout the world, and they scattered and left Jerusalem. And many of them were starting to come back into Jerusalem. And when they came back into Jerusalem, they congregated together. They created, and I know this term doesn't always you know, kind of apply appropriately, but it's true. They kind of created a ghetto of sorts. Where they, they had their own culture, own beliefs, they spoke their own language, and they lived right there in close proximity. Here's the best example I can give you of this. If you were to go to Gwinnett, there's a huge Korean population in Gwinnett County. So you go into Gwinnett, here we are right here in America, you go into Gwinnett, the state of Georgia, a county right above us. And if you go into a certain part of Gwinnett, you're going to see that there are storefronts and, you know, boutiques and nail salons and um, eateries and everything that are all in Korean. And there's a whole Korean population that live right around those, uh, those shops and those uh, places that, that they go and, and do business at, right? That's kind of what this looks like. They've come back in and they, they've made their, they, they kind of congregated together. They kind of made civilization together. They start to live together. That's what the Hellenists did. So these Hebrews, they're the majority. They always, if, if they're honest, they always kind of thought they were cut above the Hellenists. They thought they were cut above the Hellenists. And now, and as you can imagine, if they thought that way, um, even subconsciously thought that way, that creates some tension between the two, cultural, the two cultures, the two parties. So now here in Acts, what's happening? Here in Acts, they are called together to congregate in one church as one body. And Paul has told them, listen, the gospel of Jesus Christ is the dividing wall of hostility. Now we're going to congregate together and we're going to worship as one body and we're going to worship our one God. We're not going to, oh, and by the way, the Hellenists tried to create their own little churches too. And now they're all together. And now that they're together, 
there's some tension as well in the same body. The Hellenists are starting to feel like they're being neglected of their daily distribution. So how's the church going to respond to these challenges? Look at verse 2. It says, and, there were tw- and the twelve summoned the full member number of the disciples and said, Is it not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables? See, this is the organizational structure of the early church. They had two things. They had apostles and they had disciples. It was that simple. They had apostles, they had disciples. The apostles were responsible for shepherding the church. What did they do? They gathered disciples together and they addressed the problem. Now look what the apostles say. They say, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. You know, these words right here, it is not right, they actually mean it would go against God's commissioning on our lives if we neglected preaching and teaching the word of God so that we could serve tables. Let that sink in. These apostles are saying this. It would go directly against what God has told us to do if we chose to do this act of service. If we personally solved this issue on our own without the involvement of the people, we would be disobedient to God. See, these apostles understood that in order for me to say yes to one thing, man, I had to say no to something else. And they said, I'm not going to say yes to serving table because that will make me say no to the teaching and preaching of God's word. They're addressing this issue from a place of calling. Listen, church, it's not beneath them to serve tables. That's not what they're saying. They're not saying we are too good to go and serve tables. That's not it at all. They're not divas, okay? These apostles aren't like that. What they're saying is our role is to focus on teaching you the word. This work of service can be done by someone else. Here's what we need to understand as a church, okay? New challenges or problems, however you want to define them, new challenges call for new leadership. Did you hear that? New challenges call for new leadership. I'm not suggesting that if the church faces problems, we need to get rid of the pastors, okay? These are the same apostles that are in place before the problem and after the problem. They're just saying someone else has to step up. We need new leaders. We need new people that can, that can help us solve and be a solution to the problem that's occurring. Here's the solution. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the Word. So they pick seven men here from among the church. They didn't go hire help from the outside. They didn't go, you know, create some search committee to go find a group of people that were, you know, around town or whatever that could come and solve this riddle. No. They looked for seven men, and these seven men that they found had this reputation. This was the qualifications they had. It said, one, they were good repute. Good repute means that they've observed their life for an extended period of time, and these men have walked in godliness. Second, they are full of the Spirit. This means that the Spirit of God controlled every aspect of their life. They were Spirit-led. The fruit of the Spirit was evident in their life. And then third, they were full of wisdom. Listen, you can have a high IQ, and you can have a bunch of degrees, and not be very wise, okay? They didn't only have the knowledge, they knew how to apply the knowledge. That was what wisdom meant. So you see what these apostles are saying? These apostles are saying, in order for this need to be met, this is a big deal. We've got to put our best in front of them so that there's a a solution provided to the problem that's in front of us. 
And then in verse 5 it says, and, they said, Plea, or, and what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith, and the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenius, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. They chose these seven men. I want you to underline, if you write in your Bible, underline this phrase, it pleased the whole gathering. There have been three or four miracles up to this point in the book of Acts, but there is no miracle greater than this, the fact that everyone in the church found themselves pleased. Okay? Thank you for those of you who knew that was a joke. (laughs) And then in verse 6 it says, These they sat before the apostles and they prayed and laid their hands on them. What are they doing there? They're commissioning these men out. They're saying, we know that you're now the men set apart to accomplish this task. We're praying over you and we're sending you out as a part of our church to accomplish this. The congregation's affirming it. They're there, they're present, and the apostles are laying on their hands and sending them out. And then in verse 7 it says, And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. So, external persecution didn't slow down the church, internal hypocrisy didn't slow down the church, and now internal division is not going to slow down the advancement of the gospel. I love this. It says a large group, it says great many of priests. These are social leaders. These are religious leaders, and a large group of religious and social leaders have gotten saved as a result of this and come to place their faith and trust in Jesus. The most influential people in their society are now saved, born-again believers, because of this. Look, verse 1 begins by saying this, the disciples were increasing in number. Verse 7, which by the way, remember I told you that your Bible has chapter and paragraph breaks that the original Greek text does not have. So when you read the book of Acts in the original Hebrew, you kind of have to, you have to find where a thought process ends, really. Actually, this is where it ends. This is where that whole part of we're going to take the gospel to Jerusalem ends. And now it's going to go further than Jerusalem with the picking up of the story of Stephen, which is volume 2. We're going to save that for later. But it says the disciples were increasing in number in verse 1. And then this section ends in verse 7, the word of God continued to increase. Here's what Luke wants us to see. Here's what Luke wants us to see. The appointment of deacons has missional impact. The appointment of deacons has missional impact. Their job was not just to be the guys who filled all the complaints. Their job was to keep the ministry of the church flourishing. Their their job was to make sure that the gospel continued to move forward and that the movement was never hindered or stopped. That's what their job was to do. So I want to pause right here real quick this morning. I promise you we're not going to be here long. And I want to take a journey real quick and show you two things about a deacon. First, what is a deacon? What is a deacon? What do they do? There are two offices of the church. One, you have your elders and your pastors. They're responsible for the shepherd leadership of the church. And then you have your deacon. He's responsible for the servant leadership of the church. That's what a deacon is. That word literally translates as the word servant. So let's define what a deacon is real quick this morning based on this text. A deacon is a servant of Christ who demonstrates the character of Christ follows the wisdom of Christ, and serves the needs of the body of Christ. Literally, that was taken right out of the text. That's what a deacon is. A deacon's not an elder. A deacon's not a pastor. A deacon is 
a servant. Deacons should deke and elders should eld. That's what they should do. And you know what? The beauty about Eagles Landing is that's exactly what deacons do. Okay? That's who they are. The second thing I want you to see is what qualifies someone for the role of a deacon. Okay? You see three qualifications here in Acts chapter 6. They're of good repute. They're full of the Holy Spirit and they're wise. But 1 Timothy chapter 3 verse 8 through 13, listen to the words of Timothy. He says, deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And let them also be tested first and let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children with their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. See, deacons do not have to be the most skilled men in the room. Deacons do not even have to be the most capable people in the room. But they do have to model Christ-like character in their service. Now you're probably thinking, well, good for deacons. What does that mean for me? Here's what I want to show you real quick this morning. This is how we're going to close, okay? One is we met with all of our deacons back in August. We took them on a retreat, and we said, you know, guys, we want to hear from you what you think you do, what purpose you think you serve. And then we want to walk you through Scripture and kind of train you on where we think deacon, the deacon ministry of our church needs to move. And these were some of the most humble men um, on the face of the planet. First, they said, you know, Trey, I think really what we feel like we do is we serve hamburgers and hot dogs on July 4th. I'm not really sure what it looks like outside that. I partially kid there, but some of that was true. So what we did is we worked together to kind of revamp our deacon ministry, and we're going to be bringing those men before you in the next few months so that you can see them, you can know what position they hold, and then what we're going to do is we're going to identify what needs and problems we have as a church where we need to recruit more deacons in order so these needs and problems can be met. I want you to pay attention to something here. The seven men listed in this text are all Greek-speaking men. The Hellenists were the ones complaining, and they went and found seven Hellenists to fill the gap. I think that says something. Because we, in our, in our, in our current cultural context, Henry County is changing. And we as a church in the past two years should have been able to identify, you know what, there's a majority group in Henry County and there's a minority group in Henry County and unless we get more minority leadership in place, we're going to miss out on advancing the gospel to a lot of people who need to hear it. And we're going to have to find that. And we're going to have to trust that. And we're going to have to see that the gospel does not quit as our culture around us begins to change. So we're going to be doing that. But here's what this means as a whole church family, okay? There's two things I want you to take away. The first one is this. And Eric, it's going to be number two and three, or Michael, it's going to be number two and three on the list. The first one is this. We must do whatever it takes to reach the lost. We must be willing to do, church, whatever it takes to reach the lost. At the heart of the gospel is not me coming to God. At the heart of the gospel is God came to me in the sending of his son. So we as a church, we can't wait for people to walk into our building. We're going to have to be willing to buckle our straps and go out there where the people are and see that the gospel continues to advance. We're going to have to do whatever it takes to see that the lost are reached. If there's a complaint, it ought to be because the gospel is what's being hindered. In other words, what that means is I'm going to be committed to doing whatever it takes. It means I'm not going to complain about trivial things that aren't hindering the gospel. 
Let the complaints of our church be things that say, hey, Trey, I see that the gospel's not going to this direction, and I believe if we did this, that's a solution-oriented person, then we can take the gospel there. Let that be the complaints that fill our heart. Let's be a body that's willing to do whatever it takes to reach the lost. And then there's a second thing this morning. Small things lead to big things. Small things lead to big things. What does that mean? Most of us in this room, we view service to the church as a very small, trivial thing. I mean, it can't be that big. I'm just serving in the parking lot. It can't be that big because I'm just rocking a baby in the nursery. I mean, it can't be that big. I just stand at a door and say hey to people, the smiling faces they walk through. No, those are really big service positions that we need within the body of Christ. Service is not a small thing, but most of us, if we're honest, we approach it as a small thing. Why is it not small? Because you and I, we look most like Jesus when we serve. Jesus says in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, the Son of Man did not come to be served. He came to serve, and he came to give his life as a ransom for many. And you and I look most like Jesus when we come to church, not to be served, but to serve. And to be willing to sacrificially serve so that Jesus can be seen and made visible. Listen, this means we must unleash every member to use their gift. So my question is twofold for you this morning. One, are you willing to do whatever it takes to see the gospel advance? Even if that means walking across the street, walking to the next cubicle next door. Are you willing to do whatever it takes to see the gospel advance? And then two... Are you willing to do something small that can lead to very big impact, like serving your church? If you want to take one of those two steps today, here's what you can do. First, there's a next steps area. We would love for you to stop by it. We can tell you however you would like to get involved. We can make that possible for you today. Two, the first, or really the first one going with the first point, is we've got to get before God and say, Lord, help us be a church that's really committed to doing whatever it takes to see the gospel advance and then show me my role in making that happen.